Yes, amen. I hope that that is what you come away with today, is that not that we have a pretty building, although we're thankful for it, not that the people here are nice and friendly, though I hope they are, not that you thought the sermon was interesting. I hope you come away recognizing that we have a great Savior and that Jesus and all that he is for us is all that we need. In him is our life and our salvation. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we worship you, we exalt you this morning. You are worthy of our praise and our love, our adoration. You are also worthy of our full attention as we open your word. You are worthy of our obedience, worthy of our trust. So I ask that you would fix our eyes on the truth that we need to see this morning. Reveal to us your glory. And may we come away changed, strengthened, humbled, encouraged, in all the ways that you desire to minister to us, God, we invite you to do that. We ask you to do that through your spirit and for your glory. Amen. Please open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5. It is such a joy every week not just to sing about Jesus, but to study his life, to study his teaching and his miracles. And today we'll be in Luke, chapter 5, verse 17 through 26. And I'd just like to read the text before we begin. Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 17. Luke writes, On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier, to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. In the Gospel of Luke, we have seen that Jesus' popularity is rapidly growing. The crowds are coming to hear him. They're coming to see him. They they are, are coming to be healed. And with the exception of his hometown, Nazareth, where he wasn't well received, Pretty much everywhere else, it seems like all the attention Jesus is getting is very supportive. Um, He's very popular. But this scene marks the first of several conflicts that Jesus will have with a growing opposition. It's the Pharisees, it's the scribes, it's the religious leaders. And we'll see several of these conflicts in chapter 5, chapter 6. But these conflicts 
They do a lot more for us than simply raise tensions and sort of help push the whole narrative of the gospel towards the cross, which is the ultimate destination. These conflicts, as we study them, they provide an opportunity for Jesus to demonstrate his power and to declare his mission. The friction, if you would put it that way, is revealing. We get these valuable insights into who Jesus is and what it is that he came to do. So as the events of this story unfold, I want to focus on Jesus as he is standing in the spotlight. And we listen to his words, we observe his works. He's teaching us a powerful truth that he has the authority to forgive sins. So I want to look carefully at this scene and then we'll sort of consider uh, some implications together at the end. Look in verse 17. We find the setting for this conflict in verse 17. Jesus is teaching. He's in a house. There's a crowd that's gathered there. The Gospel of Mark tells us that this happens back in Capernaum, this city on the Sea of Galilee, on the shore there. And it's a city where Jesus had made his home. Although he was born in Bethlehem and raised in Nazareth, as an adult, he sort of established his home base here in Capernaum. This is where his Galilean ministry had began. He'd cast out many demons there. He had healed many who were sick, including uh, Peter's mother-in-law. We saw that in chapter 4. In fact, there's a lot of people who think that the house this scene takes place in very well may have belonged to Peter and his family. But as you can imagine, news gets out that Jesus is back in town, and people start to gather, and there's nothing that draws a crowd like a crowd. So there's a crowd that's gathered, and Jesus starts to do what he had been doing in the synagogues, what he had started doing in the countryside. When there's a crowd of people present, Jesus begins to teach. Verse 17 says he was teaching them. Little did they know they were about to get a powerful object lesson as Jesus was teaching them there in the house. But it wasn't just the locals who were there. Verse 17 tells us that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there and that they had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and even from Jerusalem. These religious leaders, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, whom he calls scribes later, they are the antagonists in this story. They are the ones who will be hostile to Jesus, resistant to what he is saying and opposing what he is doing. This is the first time the Pharisees have been mentioned in the Gospel of Luke. And as we're going to be studying it for some weeks, it may be helpful to understand who these guys are. It's a term we hear a lot. In fact, it's a term that's even crept into our common usage. You might call someone a Pharisee. It's usually a negative thing, right? Well, who are the Pharisees? They emerged around the time of the Maccabean Revolt. This was something that took place over 160 years before Jesus was born. And the, the term Pharisee, it's not a job title. It's not like Pharisee was what they did for a living. This was a movement. It was an ideology, sort of like today we have uh, conservatives and progressives and libertarians. That's not a job title, a senator or a governor or a city commissioner. You know, that's a job description. But to be conservative or progressive or libertarian or fill in the blank, that's more of an ideology. Phariseeism was an ideology, except it wasn't political. It was a religious ideology. The term Pharisee literally meant the separated ones, the holy ones. They were trying to maintain this status of holiness and purity in their context. They were resisting the Hellenization of the Jewish people. To be Hellenized is to, is to impart the Greek culture, Hellenistic culture, thought, 
philosophy, morality, um, even styles of dress, political norms, social norms. They were resistant. They'd been conquered by the Greeks and then the Romans, but the Pharisees wanted to stay Jewish. They didn't want to mix and become diluted with this pagan ideology and philosophy. They were highly dedicated to holiness and to the keeping of the Old Testament law. They knew that God wanted them to be a holy, distinct nation, which meant they had to be different, and it meant they had to obey God's law. And they believed that a renewal of covenant faithfulness in Israel, if they could just get everybody to buy in, if they could get everyone to be holy and obey the law, they thought that sort of national purity was necessary for the Messiah to come and for the kingdom to be established. So you can see why they were so passionate about keeping the law. And although they only numbered around 6,000 people, those that were recognized as Pharisees, that's not a lot in the scope of the whole nation, the Pharisees were very popular and they were very influential. Though they were not the majority party on the Jewish Sanhedrin, which was their ruling council, there was a number of Pharisees that had seats on the council. So these Pharisees are present, some even from Jerusalem, sort of the higher ups, the more official guys who, who lived in the city that influenced the whole nation, their capital. And they're there to evaluate Jesus. They're there because they want to figure out what his angle is. They want to know what Jesus is all about. They're suspicious of this young rabbi. He's gaining this big popularity, but he didn't go to their schools. He wasn't part of their system. He didn't play their game. He didn't hang out with their crowd. So they're sort of nervous about Jesus. They'd heard he was doing amazing things, and they're trying to make sense out of all of it. But Luke points out not only are these religious leaders there, there's something else that is there in the house with Jesus. And it's the power of God. At the end of verse 17, it says, the power of the Lord was with him to heal. So Luke is sort of setting up for us this conflict. The religious leaders are present, and the power of the Lord is also present, and it is with Jesus to heal. Although Jesus is fully God, he humbly set aside his divine power, the, the, the prerogative to exercise that divine power independently. He, he set that aside when he humbled himself and became a man. At his baptism, the Father anointed him with the power of the Holy Spirit. We saw this at the end of chapter 3, the beginning of chapter 4, that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. It was in the power of the Spirit that Jesus carried out his earthly ministry. So Jesus is full of this power of the Lord and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, ready to heal. The religious leaders are there, skeptical, evaluating. So the stage is set, and we can already anticipate what's going to happen. We see the opportunity for this conflict, verses 18 through 19, as a paralyzed man is brought to Jesus. 18 and 19, there's some men who brought on a bed a man paralyzed. They were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. These four guys are determined absolutely determined to bring their friend to Jesus. Maybe he's their neighbor, maybe he's their brother, we don't know. All we know is that these guys must love him because they're willing to do anything they could to help him. Perhaps they had heard about the cleansing of the leper and they hoped that maybe Jesus would show compassion on their friend or their brother, their neighbor, whatever the relationship was. So they, they carry this paralyzed man or they try to carry him into the house to see Jesus, but it's packed. It's first come, first serve, and no one wants to give up their spot in line. No one wants to lose their view. 
You have to wonder how many other people came that day seeking healing and were turned away. But it doesn't stop these men. They're determined to get to Jesus. And so, plan B. Um, Instead of using the door, they decide to dig a hole in the roof. I don't think that's on any Christian t-shirts, but it should be. Usually it says, you know, when God closes a door, he opens a window. I want to make one that says, you know, when the door is closed, just kick in the roof or something like that. It'd be a different t-shirt. But they decide to go up and make their own entrance. Most homes in that day, they had an external staircase, and it would lead up to the roof. It was a flat roof, and they typically used that roof as sort of a secondary living space, like you might use your porch or your deck. And the the roof was usually constructed with wooden beams that were run lengthwise. It was then thatched with smaller branches, then covered in hard-packed mud, and then some houses, like this one, would even put tile down. That way you could sweep off and you'll keep your roof nice and clean. So these men decide they were going to install a new skylight in this house. Verse 19, they let him down with his bed through the tiles. Mark's gospel tells us that they had to dig through the roof to do it. Now this is very bold. It's bold because they are interrupting Jesus' sermon. Jesus is teaching. That would have caused a major distraction. This act was also very sacrificial. They knew that they would either have to repair this roof themselves or they'd have to pay to have it done one way or the other. You know, if you break it, you got to fix it. And so this is very bold and very sacrificial of these men. So imagine the people surprised inside the house. They're listening to Jesus. They start to hear something above them. Then they start to see something as the dirt and debris starts to rain down on everybody in the middle of the house. And eventually sunlight breaks into the room and they look up and see four or five faces up in, this, up in this new hole, and they see a man being lowered down on his mat. The cripple is finally before the king. These four men, they had accomplished it. They had put this guy in front of Jesus. And now we see the cause for the conflict. You can see the pressure is starting to ramp up. Verse 20 and 21. Speaking of Jesus, it says, When he saw their faith, he said, Man, Your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now we have some real tension. I bet this paralyzed man who's in the middle of all of this, he's sort of caught in the crossfire. I bet he was thankful that his friends didn't take the obstacle of the crowd to be some sort of sign that, well, it's just not God's will for them to get to Jesus that day. They exercised faith. Their faith in Jesus' power, their faith in Jesus' goodness compelled them to tear that hole in the roof. And it says that Jesus saw it. He saw their faith. He saw it because of their actions. He saw their love for their friend. He saw their determination to reach him. He saw their ingenuity. He saw their persistence. He saw their sacrifice. And he recognized it as faith in action. There's no way they would have done all that if they didn't believe with all their heart that Jesus could and that Jesus would heal their paralyzed friend. When Luke says he saw their faith, surely this must include the paralyzed man himself. He obviously agreed to this plan. He wasn't fighting and you know, scratching, saying, no, don't put me through the roof. He also trusted his friends to let him down through the hole. And now he's looking expectantly at Jesus. 
Jesus sees those men on the roof. He sees this crippled man in front of him, and he sees faith. Notice what Jesus does. As he sees their faith, he responds in a way that surprises us, not by healing the man, but instead by meeting a different need. Jesus speaks to a deeper need. This man had a need for forgiveness. He says, man, your sins are forgiven you. This is instructive for us. Your greatest need, friend, and my greatest need. The greatest need in our community, the greatest need in our nation, the greatest need in our world is that we as human beings are sinners who desperately need to be made right with God. Our greatest need is not physical health. It's not self-esteem. It's not political change. It's not economic improvement. It's not better education. Our greatest need, our deepest need is reconciliation with God. The removal of our guilt, that's what we need. Freedom from the penalty for our violation of God's law, that's what we need. We need forgiveness, in a word. And that is precisely what Jesus came to provide. This forgiveness is the essence of the salvation that we've seen sung about so often in the early chapters of Luke. You go back to Luke chapter 1, we find Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, breaking out in prophetic joy because his son John would give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. It's Luke 1:77. Knowledge of salvation in the forgiveness of sins. That is what salvation is. Forgiveness of sin. Mary saying of God's mercy provided in the child that she was carrying. Mercy on sinners who need forgiveness. Chapter 1, verse 50 and 54. The angels in Luke chapter 2 saying of a Savior who was born in Bethlehem. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. This Savior would bring peace with God by removing the sin that causes enmity between man and God. The old man Simeon rejoiced at seeing baby Jesus. He cried out, my eyes have seen your salvation. Jesus is the Savior who came to provide this salvation and this salvation consists of forgiveness for sins. This is what Jesus came to do. And in front of this astonished crowd that was packed into this house, Jesus looks past this man's paralyzed body and he looks into his heart and he sees his deepest need, his true need. And he speaks these life-giving, soul-saving words. He says, man, your sins are forgiven you. We're not told how the man on the mat responded right away to these words but we are told how the religious leaders reacted. Again, this story really focuses more on the conflict than it even does on on the man who was uh, forgiven. Look in verse 21. The scribes and Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? This question they ask, who can forgive sins but God alone? That is a great question. That is the right question. Throughout Luke's gospel, this sort of question comes up often. We'll see in chapter 7 that Jesus will pronounce forgiveness once again at a dinner at a Pharisee's house. And all the dinner guests will say, who is this who even forgives sins? It's like there's a theme here or something. 
Luke chapter 8, verse 25, the disciples will say, who is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? They're blown away when Jesus calms the storm. Luke chapter 9, Jesus asks his disciples, who do the crowds say that I am? Then he presses in further, who do you say that I am? This is always the key question. Who is Jesus? But the religious leaders don't know the answer. And that's why they're shocked by his words. And they consider this statement of Jesus to be blasphemous. Their logic is actually pretty sound. They rightly point out that only God can forgive sins. Isaiah 43, 11 says, I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. Only the Lord can save. Only God can forgive sins. Isaiah 43, 25, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. God alone provides forgiveness. You see, God is the one whose law is broken when man sins. Therefore, only God can rightly declare someone's sins forgiven. Just like if you owe your buddy 20 bucks, I can't say, oh, you don't have to pay it back. (laughs) You don't owe me 20 bucks. You owe your buddy. You have to take it up with him. Only God can forgive sins because sin is against God. Their logic is very sound. It's even biblical. Jesus, in declaring sins forgiven, was making a claim He was making a claim to divine authority. Divine authority. God-like authority. To say what only God can say. To do what only God can do. That's claiming to be God. And this was risky business. Because Leviticus 24.16 says, Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. These Pharisees and teachers of the law, they knew that verse. They had it memorized. And they saw what Jesus was doing and they considered it blasphemous. Only God can forgive sins. Who does this man think he is? You see, a good man, a true prophet, a moral teacher would never claim to be God. So Jesus is either a blasphemer or he's divine. There's no middle ground. There's no other options. As C.S. Lewis famously put it, Jesus is either liar or lunatic or Lord. That's really at the heart of this conflict in this story. So how does Jesus respond? Look in verse 22 through 25. It says, when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? You see, just like Jesus saw the faith of these four men and their paralyzed friend, Jesus also perceives their unbelief, their lack of faith. He recognizes it and he calls it out. He calls them out and says, why do you question in your hearts? He's holding them accountable. You see, these men had heard Jesus teaching. They'd been listening to him. They had heard the message prior to Jesus. They'd heard about the message of John the Baptist as well. He spoke to these Pharisees as he was preparing the way. These men knew the Old Testament as well, if not better, than anyone else. They were supposed to be the experts when it came to God's promises of Messiah So the paralytic may have been physically crippled, unable to walk, but these Pharisees and scribes are spiritually crippled because they're unwilling to believe. Why do you question in your hearts? And then Jesus asks them another question. Verse 23, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you or to say rise and walk? He says, let's think about this for a minute. 
Let's consider what's actually happening here. Which is easier? Well, the answer is, well, both acts are impossible for man. Only divine power can produce healing, and only divine authority can grant forgiveness. And Jesus is pointing this out because he could, he could claim to forgive and they could sort of deny that. They can say, no, you can't, and no, you didn't, because they can't observe it. You're not able to see forgiveness. But no one would be able to deny a paralyzed man walking out of the house. So Jesus is in effect saying, I'm about to do a miracle you can see, to prove my power to do the miracle that you can't see. This miracle, this healing, demonstrates visibly and physically what Jesus had the power to do spiritually. So he says in verse 24, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Jesus uses the word here, authority. The Son of Man has authority, and he, he, he connects authority with this term, Son of Man, The Son of Man has authority. That's what I want you to know. That's what you need to understand. That's what you must believe, scribes and Pharisees, that the Son of Man, which is me, has authority to forgive sins. In the New Testament, this term, this this label, the Son of Man, this title for Jesus, it appears 80 times. It's very common. And 25 of those occasions are in Luke's gospel. And this is Jesus' favorite way to refer to himself. He often speaks of himself as the Son of Man. Where does this title come from? Well, it originates in the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Daniel writes, I saw in the night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, to the Son of Man, was given dominion or authority. It's the same word and glory in a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. The Son of Man is granted this authority from the Ancient of Days. Jesus says, the Son of Man has authority, and I'm the Son of Man. See, Jesus may have been interrupted when that hole got opened up in the roof and all that debris started falling on their heads, but Jesus didn't stop teaching. He's still teaching. He's revealing a key truth for everyone who is present. This miracle is is meant to prove to them that he is the son of man and that he has authority to forgive sins. So he says to the man who is paralyzed, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And look at what happens in verse 25. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. These men had said, who is this man who claims to forgive sins? Jesus says, I will show you. I will show you. And this man walks out of the house. It's a pretty definitive argument as to Jesus' authority and his power, his identity. What's the result of all of this? Look in verse 26. Amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. The homeowners the neighbors, the religious inspectors from out of town, all of them are are blown away by what they've just seen. Even though the scribes and Pharisees are resistant to Jesus' words, no one could deny what they had just seen with their own eyes. This man who had been shriveled up, who had been carried in on a pallet into the house, was now carrying his own pallet out of the house. 
And everyone's blown away. And they respond as those who truly feel that they are in the presence of God. Because they are. Look at what Luke emphasizes in verse 26. He's piling up all these descriptions. Amazement sees them all. They glorify God. They're filled with awe. And they say, we've seen extraordinary things today. This is sort of like what Peter did in the boat after the miracle of the fish. Remember that? Peter was overwhelmed with the realization that he was in the presence of the Holy One, the Son of God. Peter cried out in verse 8 of Luke 5, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. There's a heavy realization that we are in the presence of glory. Once again in this story, we've been confronted with the reality of who Jesus is, that he is God in human form. And if Jesus is God, if he is divine, then it is no blasphemy for him to forgive sins. He has that authority. The very simple point of this story is that Jesus is the Son of Man, and he has the authority to forgive sins. I want to share three implications in closing. This is a little bit of a longer conclusion, sort of the application section. Three implications. These are, these are eternal principles we can draw from this story. It's one thing to understand a story that happened, you know, 2,000 years ago. It's another thing to recognize what you and I are supposed to get from this story. What is the implication for you and me today? Well, there's a few truths that I want to pull out that we are called to believe and respond to. Number one is this. Number one, the first principle is that forgiveness of sin is our greatest need. Forgiveness of sin is our greatest need. In this story, the healing of this man is secondary. And this healing, I believe, is also symbolic, just like all of Jesus' healings. Jesus' miracles, where he deals with man's physical problems, they often illustrate his mission to come deal with our spiritual problems. And what was hinted at last week in the passage right before this, the cleansing of the leper, what, what was hinted at there is now made explicit in the house where Jesus said, I came to provide forgiveness of sin. Jesus is the Messiah, the one who comes to restore Israel, not just physically, but spiritually. He is a savior who came not just to rescue us from disease, but to rescue us from the penalty for our sins. You know, there's a lot of needs in the world today. Food for the hungry, peace for war-torn nations, education for those who are disadvantaged, homes for orphaned children, just laws for oppressed people. The list goes on and on and on. And some of you have needs today that you've brought into this room with you. Some of those needs are small. Some of those needs are big. Some of those needs are normal. Some of them are extraordinary. Some of those needs may be physical, they may be emotional. Perhaps your needs today are financial or relational, but listen, the single greatest need that any person can have and a need that only God can meet is to have your sins forgiven. Because this is our greatest need, we can flip that around and say it in a positive way that the greatest blessing, the greatest gift is to have this need met. Psalm 32, 1 through 2 says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. That's a blessing. 
That is a gift. True blessing, true joy, real peace comes not from having all of those other needs met because they don't quite get to the bottom of what you really need. True joy, real peace comes from being made right with God and having your sins forgiven because that's our greatest need. There's a second implication. Not only is forgiveness our greatest need, but number two, the forgiveness that we need comes only through Christ. It comes only through Christ. I want to just maybe tackle a piece of bad advice that well-meaning people often offer. How many of you heard someone say before, maybe you've even said it at times, you just need to forgive yourself. It's well-meaning. It's well-intentioned. It sounds nice. The problem is that nowhere does the Bible command us to forgive ourselves. Nowhere does the Bible tell us that our need is to forgive ourselves. Nowhere does the Bible tell us we have the power or the authority to forgive ourselves. That sort of a statement assumes that the main problem with sin is that it makes you feel bad about yourself, that it makes you feel guilty. That sort of counsel assumes the main problem is subjective guilt. But the main problem with sin, listen, the main problem is not how it makes you feel. The main problem with sin is how it makes God feel. Subjective guilt may be uncomfortable. It's painful. It's heavy. But listen, it is our objective guilt our legal guilt before a holy God, the judge of all the earth, that is the real problem. It is his laws that we have broken. It's his holiness that we've turned away from. It is his glory that we have disdained. It's his love that we have spurned. It is his will that we have defied. It is his authority that we have rejected. And that is the problem. So the forgiveness that we need is the forgiveness that comes from him. We are in no position to forgive ourselves because our sin is against God but here is the good news the good news is that Christ Jesus who has the authority of God he forgives sinners he offers forgiveness to us and the forgiveness that Jesus gives us is far superior to any supposed forgiveness we could give ourselves in fact it's even superior to the forgiveness that we give and receive from each other. Think about that. As desperately as we may desire forgiveness from our fellow man, and as necessary as it is to seek it, and we're called to, the forgiveness we give to each other, the forgiveness we receive from each other, it pales in comparison to the forgiveness that we find in Christ. Think about it. People may forgive us or they may not, but Jesus always forgives those who come to him in faith. People may forgive reluctantly. Jesus forgives gladly. People may forgive us temporarily. He forgives us eternally. People may forgive us partially. Jesus forgives us completely. People may forgive us eventually, but Christ forgives us immediately. People may forgive us conditionally, but Jesus forgives us on the basis of his work on the cross. Friends, I say this not to demean human forgiveness. It is a beautiful and necessary thing. I say this to exalt the mercy of Christ, to see what it is that Jesus gives us when he says, man, woman, child, your sins are forgiven you. 
Listen, the forgiveness that we give each other just doesn't even compare. Are you resting in that perfect forgiveness? Is that where you find your hope and your comfort? Is that where you go to soothe those feelings of subjective guilt? Listen, this forgiveness that we find in Christ, it is the key to peace with God. This is what settles your soul. This is the peace that allows joy to grow deep roots and to produce a life of worship and obedience to Christ. It's because we know that we have received his perfect forgiveness. It's the third principle. Not only is forgiveness our greatest need and it's offered through Christ, but third, forgiveness is granted to those who believe. We see this right here in this passage. This miracle connects forgiveness not with good works, not with jumping through certain hoops. It connects forgiveness with faith. Jesus saw their faith, and he said, you're forgiven. There's a contrast here between those who believe and those who don't. He sees faith in one small group of people, and he sees unbelief in another And the believing are forgiven and blessed, but the unbelieving are confronted. The unbelieving are rebuked. The unbelieving are called to account for rejecting the truth of Scripture. So how about you? Which party do you fall in? How does Jesus respond to you? Do you believe? Do you believe that forgiveness of sin is your greatest need? Or are you not convinced? Do you believe that Christ has the authority to forgive sin and that his forgiveness is enough? Or are you not convinced? Listen, if you believe that Jesus is the one who meets our greatest need, that he offers forgiveness, you'll do two things. You'll do two things. Number one, you will come to him for forgiveness. You will come in faith. Uh, but second, I want to speak especially to believers here. If you've experienced that, if you've, if you've placed your faith in Christ and received that forgiveness, then you will rejoice in Jesus as the provision for your greatest need. You will be like this man in verse 25 who goes home glorifying God because you know what your need was and you are celebrating that Christ has met that need. You will respond like the people in the house in verse 26, marveling, glorifying God in complete awe that you have seen an extraordinary thing that the Son of Man has pronounced over you a word of forgiveness. That's the response. So do you believe and will you respond? Whether it's coming to Christ in faith for the first time to be made clean or whether it's coming again to be reminded of this truth and to celebrate, to marvel, and to worship. Jesus is the Son of Man, and he has authority to forgive our sins. What a miracle of mercy. You know, we get to respond to this truth today in communion. Communion, you see the table is set for us here today. Communion is for sinners. But communion is for sinners who have come in faith to Christ. This is a living, walking parable that illustrates what salvation is. It's sinners who come confessing their need to receive what Jesus provides. And what Jesus provides is himself. The bread reminds us of his body broken for us. The the cup 
symbolizes the blood of Jesus that has been shed once and for all at the cross to secure forgiveness for us. As we eat and as we drink, we rehearse with joy those words that Christ has spoken to us, spoken to us that our sins are forgiven. That our sins are forgiven on the basis of his death. It's the shedding of his blood. It's the breaking of his body that purchases this forgiveness for us. We're reminded that we're forgiven at a great cost. Friends, this is an opportunity as we, as we move towards communion. It's an opportunity to remember, to marvel, to glorify God, just like the people in this passage, and to give thanks to him for meeting our greatest need. You know, I'm sure this man who was not only forgiven of sins, but healed of his paralysis, I'm sure that he never forgot throughout the rest of his life what it was that Jesus did for him that day in that house. We too have much to remember. We have much to give thanks for because Christ has looked on us in our neediness, in our helplessness, and has extended that word of forgiveness, that word of grace. Would you bow and pray with me? Lord, I ask that you would help us in this moment to sense the the weightiness of our need, to see our own sin in all of its ugliness, to sense our helplessness and our weakness. But I pray that in this moment you would also cause us to see in greater detail, in, in bigger scale, in fuller color than we ever have before, the glory of Jesus Christ, the one who has authority to forgive our sins. And Lord, as we look at your son Jesus, fill our hearts with faith that we might come to him, trust in him, rest in his pronouncement of forgiveness. And may we worship you with a fresh sense of gratitude, with an eagerness, with with a sense of awe at all that you have accomplished for us. So Lord, receive our worship as a a sweet and pleasing sacrifice to you and unite our hearts as we continue to celebrate the gospel in communion. We pray this in the name of Jesus, your son. Amen.